Well, hello, great to be together again today. And I'm joining you on video because I've just celebrated my son's wedding. I'm obviously recording this before my son's wedding, um, but we've got a weekend of family celebrations and so I couldn't be with you in person today. But it's still an honor to come and look at the Bible together where we're in our series in Mark's Gospel called Broken, Lost and Found, How Jesus Brings Us Home to the Father. And as we're studying Mark's Gospel, we're seeing all of these different vignettes and stories and moments where we see how Jesus brings broken and lost people like us home to meet our Heavenly Father. And today we're going to be in Mark 9 and Mark 10, where we're going to be looking at how Jesus changes us on the journey. How Jesus changes us on the journey. And to start, I want us to look at a rarely used proverb. Now, Proverbs is a brilliant book. It's in the Old Testament and it's so full of wisdom and practical guidance for life. But every now and again, you come across a cryptic proverb and you think, what the heck does that mean? And so we're going to start with one of those cryptic proverbs this morning. Proverbs 14 verse 4 says this, Without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. I hope that blessed you. Well, what I take from that particular proverb is this, is that actually where there are big radical disciples of Jesus, there's going to be some mess in the process. If you want a nice, clean, tidy life, then don't go into the business of raising world-changing disciples. But if you really want a large harvest of souls, if you want to see the nation change for Jesus, then you're going to need some strong oxen. And the implication of this proverb is there's going to be some mess along the way. And what I love about Jesus' environment of disciple making is that it's not a sanitized environment. Jesus doesn't grow and mature his disciples by placing them in a spiritual laboratory for three years. He doesn't, doesn't say, listen, first pass these tests, do this Bible questionnaire, you know, do your kind of time. And then when you're ready, when you're perfect, come out and join me on mission. That's not what Jesus does. The moment that they sign up to follow Jesus, they are doing the business of Jesus. They are praying for the sick. They're preaching the gospel. They're doing the stuff. And as we come to Mark 9 and 10, we are actually seeing them really motoring in terms of the power and the signs and the wonders that they're moving in. They're really starting to bring the kingdom. But at the same time, we start to see some of the mess that's still on the inside start to manifest on the outside. And Jesus actually creates an environment in which big people can grow and be changed on the journey. I love what Paul Manwaring said many years ago. He said, Jesus created a team environment where he created 11 world changers and one Judas. But we are so often so afraid of producing one Judas that we never produce 11 world changers either. In other words, we often create museums rather than growth environments. We create sanitized environments rather than believing God to change people on the journey. And this is what Jesus does. And so what we're going to look at today is just a snapshot of four heart issues that get exposed in the disciples as they are following Jesus. And then we're going to look at, in each of those instances, Jesus' answer to those four issues. Because what we know is that Jesus doesn't expose issues to leave us in our mess. 
He exposes it so that he can redeem us, heal us, restore us, and put in us a kingdom mindset so that we start to think like Jesus. And so I pray as we go through these that it will speak to you about maybe heart issues that God is on at the moment in your life and my life. And so let's start here. The heart issue of unbelief. This appears in Mark 9 in verse 19. The disciples, well, 10 of them anyway, are left to their own devices um, to try and bring freedom to a young a young boy. He's the son of a father who's desperate to see his son brought into freedom, but this son keeps going into convulsions. He's spiritually oppressed and the disciples cannot help him. And this is what Jesus says as he enters into the story. Mark 9, 19. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So amazing, isn't it? How much unbelief can still exist in the heart of unbelievers. And I, I probably like you, many times in my life have been shocked by my capacity for not trusting Jesus, even though I'm his follower. And so often that manifests itself in things like cynicism, skepticism, not really being able to trust the promises of God, stopping reading the word of God because somehow we don't just we don't really believe it's true. Not really throwing all our eggs in the basket of trusting Jesus, but having one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus camp. Our unbelief can manifest in all these different kinds of ways. But we're kidding ourselves if they think believers don't struggle with unbelief. We do. And the disciples at this moment have their unbelief exposed. And Jesus says, it's because of your unbelief that you cannot bring freedom to this boy. And one question I, you know, am mulling on at the moment, particularly for Christians coming out of this COVID season is, has the COVID season revealed in you greater faith in Jesus or greater unbelief? Are you coming out with your faith strengthened, giving glory to God? Or are you coming out limping actually with huge areas of doubt and uncertainty? And I've seen Christians in both of those camps. And I would say to you, if you're coming out in this camp where you're coming out actually struggling with your faith, then hold on because Jesus has a beautiful answer for you. But unbelief is the first heart issue that gets exposed. Secondly, the heart issue of pride gets exposed. In Mark 9, verse 33, here's what we read. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. I love the honesty of scripture and I also love the sheepishness of the disciples here who understand that they should not have been having this discussion. Who is going to be top dog? Who's going to be top of the pile? Who's going to be the greatest? Which one of us is the best disciple? I just love the honesty of scripture that they were talking about these things, but they clearly knew it was wrong because they didn't answer Jesus' direct question. I suspect he already knew what they were talking about but was wanting to see if they would reveal it or not. And really what we see in the disciples here is pride, arrogance, the desire for position. And this heart issue that's still on the inside of them gets exposed on the journey of Jesus. They have a little taste of success, seeing some fruitfulness, and suddenly it jumps to them wanting position and power. 
it leads them to pride and arrogance. And ultimately what that does in the camp is it creates competition. They begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest. They jostle for position. There's kind of some male headbutting going on in this moment. And that's what pride and arrogance ultimately does. It creates an environment of competition and jealousy. And competition and jealousy can fundamentally undermine a move of God where we leave it unchallenged. But Jesus doesn't do that. And again, we'll come to his answer in a few moments time. Here's the third heart issue that gets exposed. And it's tribalism. Tribalism. Verse 38 of Mark 9, we read this. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. On the face of it, it sounds absolutely preposterous that uh, John would have done this, and yet it is what he did. He effectively tried to shut down another church because that church wasn't part of his tribe. And here, we again, we see right on the table in front of Jesus is this tribalism and desire for exclusivity in the disciples, even to the point where they begin shutting down people who are doing good things in the name of Jesus. Friends, if ever we've seen tribalism put on the heart, uh, put on the table in the heart of Christians, it's this last season. I, I've never seen a time in my life where I've seen Christians so polarised from one another um, it, one camp throwing rocks at another and vice versa. And if, if you have been unfortunate enough to be in any kind of discussion forum on social media around controversial issues, whether it's to do with politics or COVID or race or all sorts of different things that are going on in our society right now, you will have seen Christians acting in an incredibly dishonourable way so often towards one another. Not always. Some people have handled discussions brilliantly. They've learned how to agree to disagree well. But so many Christians have not learned how to do that. We are still throwing rocks at each other, like the disciples here, shutting down people who believe in Jesus, but may look or sound a bit different than you. Tribalism is absolutely rampant in the world right now. And ultimately, ultimately, it's the enemy's scheme to divide and conquer. That is the enemy's scheme all the time. Where he can divide us, he creates disunity, disloyalty and discord. And yet actually Jesus has a different way. And he begins to speak into the tribalism that is exposed in the hearts of the disciples. Fourth heart issue that gets exposed is hierarchy. In Mark 10 verse 13, here's what we read. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so that he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Now, again, I'm sure the disciples meant well. I'm sure they probably meant to protect Jesus. But also what gets exposed here really in the disciples is their understanding of how they think the kingdom works. That the kingdom of God works like all the other kingdoms in the world. That the kingdom of heaven works by hierarchy and position and influence. And that there are a few important, powerful people with influence and titles that should have the best access to Jesus. Whereas children who have no rights and no real kind of influence at all. They should be seen but not heard. That is really what gets exposed here in the disciples. 
And, you know, effectively, they're shutting down the next generation from having access to Jesus, which doesn't seem like a good idea in hindsight. They think power belongs to the strong and the influential. But Jesus has other ideas. So let's look at some of those ideas of Jesus now, because he speaks into all four of those heart issues very, very directly. And he begins to address them from a kingdom mindset. So let's look at what Jesus says. Firstly, how does he address the issue of unbelief? The disciples' inability to bring freedom to this young boy. Well, here's what we read Jesus says to them. Mark 9 verse 28. Afterwards, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. How does Jesus fix unbelief? Quite simply, prayer. How do you deal with unbelief, Jesus says? Go to your father. Learn how to pray. Seek God and your unbelief will drop away. This is how we fix unbelief. You see, prayer is not just a weapon to fix things. It's not just a sledgehammer for breakthrough. You know, we don't just pray in order to get stuff done. If your prayer life solely consists of praying to get stuff done, then you've substituted prayer for something as much more glorious and much bigger than that. Yes, we pray to get things done, but prayer is the relational gateway through which we get to know God. Prayer is how you get to know him. Prayer is how we fellowship with God, talk with God, bear our souls before God, learn to give ourselves to God, learn to listen to God's counsel, learn to walk with him. Prayer is the relational doorway for you to know God. And I tell you the truth, friends, you cannot grow in your knowledge of God and continue to grow in unbelief at the same time. One will trump the other every time because when you see him, your unbelief has to drop away because seeing God is the answer to your lack of trust, your cynicism, your skepticism. Knowing God is the thing that causes those other things to drop and fall away. And you see this in the example of doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas who doubted that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Even when his best friends had seen Jesus, he refused to believe them. He was riddled with doubt and skepticism and unbelief. It's like, no way, I am not believing this. And yet the moment that he sees the resurrected Jesus drawing close to him, Thomas falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. Thomas could no longer remain in unbelief when he saw Jesus. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, friends, when you hit doubts, when you hit cynicism, when you hit struggles with your faith, the answer to your doubts is not to create greater distance between you and God. And isn't that what many of us tend to do? We hit a roadblock in our faith and we think, what is going to fix this? is withdrawing from God and withdrawing from God's people and withdrawing from God's word. That's, that's so often our response to our doubt and unbelief. And I know that unbelief is painful, but Jesus is saying, if you will bring the pain of your doubts and unbelief to me in prayer, I will transform and redeem that and make it a brand new place. And so friends, I want to encourage you, if that is you, if you like the disciples, you are struggling to believe, listen to Jesus' advice, pray, draw near to God in prayer. 
Start tomorrow, start today. Just get some time to walk with God every day, to fellowship with him, to talk to him, to bear your soul to him, grow in your knowledge of God. And I tell you, your unbelief will drop off. This is Jesus' first response. Secondly, what about pride? How does Jesus address that? This argument about who's going to be the greatest. Mark 9 verse 35. It says, Jesus sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take the last place and be the servant of everybody else. I love that. What's Jesus' answer for pride and their lust for position and power? Well, it's simply this serve serve now what jesus doesn't do is actually dismantle the desire for greatness he doesn't say to them guys you're just so so full of unholy ambition it's wrong for you to want to be great at all that's not what jesus does he actually affirms their desire for significance it's just that he remolds what significance really looks like in the kingdom you know you were born to want to bear fruit for God. It's good to have holy ambition. It's good to want to produce something valuable in your life. That's good. It's good for us to desire for greatness. You know, none of us are born desiring insignificance in the future. You know, as a kid, you know, I I grew up wanting to be a famous sportsman or a famous artist or a, a famous whatever. You know, I was born with a desire. I want to do something with my life. And Jesus doesn't rubbish that. He says, guys, your desire for significance is right. But here's what greatness looks like in the kingdom. Greatness looks like being the last, not the first, and being the servant, not the master. That's greatness. Your your desire for greatness is right, but this is what it looks like. Learn to serve. Again, friends, I wonder how we're doing on that. Is this how you're living? Again, I think many of us living through a pandemic, we perhaps have more time on our hands. Church hasn't been on. Many of us have been uh, watching from our sofas, often in our pajamas, and the need to serve one another, particularly on you know days like Sundays, has been less. And perhaps coming out of the season, we're thinking, that's quite nice, doing a bit less, not serving. Maybe I won't pick those things back up again. And listen, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But listen, ultimately it comes down to a heart issue. Will we live the life of a servant? And we don't serve because we have to. We serve because it's part of our identity. Sons and daughters serve. Jesus said, listen, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Serving and sonship go together. We serve because it's part of our new nature. And so what's that going to look like for us in this next season? I love what Bill Johnson says about this. He says that we should learn to serve with the heart of a king and rule with the heart of a servant. I love that. So he's saying, listen, if you have position, then actually use that position to serve. And as you serve, serve with a sense of your dignity and identity intact. We don't serve because we're orphans. We serve because we're sons and daughters of the living God. We reflect him as we serve one another. What does that look like for you in this season? You know, operating out of rest doesn't mean that we let everybody else do the work. Rest is a posture of the heart that enables us to serve joyfully. And this is how Jesus combats pride and arrogance and the desire for position and power. Thirdly, what about tribalism? How does Jesus combat this? 
this is what he says in Mark 9, verse 40. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you that tr- the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. Essentially, Jesus says to them, guys, just because those people over there look different than you and they're not in your group, if they're not against you, then they're for you. Celebrate what they're doing. Resist the temptation to exclusivity and competition and comparison. Where you see me at work, celebrate it. And in fact, even my Father in heaven rewards those guys for what they're doing in my name. Who are you to oppose what God is blessing? Again, friends, I would just appeal to us in this season where the world is more and more polarized and tribal in its instincts. Refrain from following the pattern of the world. Let's set a countercultural model of what the kingdom of heaven looks like, which is not divisive. The kingdom of heaven is unified. Ephesians 4 says that we should keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Friends, that is our calling to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. People may be different than you. They may express things differently than you. But Jesus in this scene is saying, unite around the things that you have in common. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus died. That Jesus rose again. Wherever you see Jesus' blessing, you bless it as well. And then lastly, how does Jesus combat hierarchy? The fact that the disciples tried to turn away the little children. Well, Mark 10 verse 13 and 6 to 16. It says, when Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. How does Jesus deal with the disciples' warped view of authority and influence and power and hierarchy Well, simply this, childlikeness. If you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to become like a little child. He welcomes the children and he blesses them. And again, friends, if we're going to grow up and become more mature, we need to actually become more like a little child. And really what that looks like is we need to become more dependent, like a child is dependent. We need to become more trusting. We need to become more innocent. We need to be those that believe quickly, like little children do. This is what Jesus is saying. As you grow up, grow down. Grow up to become like a little child. This is a descent into greatness. And again, I would just urge you to be inspired by children amongst us who just trust God so easily. Through the years, I've learned so much from my children as they've just simply believed God. So this is how Jesus changes us on the journey. Our proverb again says, without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. Friends, we are committed to raising world-changing disciples who are going to change their spheres of influence wherever God has placed them. And that includes you and it includes me. But I tell you, if we're going to raise some strong oxen, there is going to be some mess on the way. But Jesus is not put off by our mess, but he enters our mess to redeem it and to put his kingdom right in that place. And so, friends, if you recognize any of these heart issues I've mentioned today, Jesus wants to rush to you and call you into a different way of living.
If he finds unbelief, he calls you back to the place of prayer. If he finds in you perhaps pride and arrogance, he calls us again to come and to serve others. If he finds in us tribalism, polarization from other believers, he calls us to unify and to celebrate what we see him blessing. And if he finds hierarchy and strange views about power and position, he calls us back to childlikeness. Friends, I praise you, listen and meditate on these words that you do business with God and that you walk with Jesus and allow him to change you in this season. God wants us to grow up into him and reflect him in the world today. God bless you. Amen.